2: Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden
1: has promised again and again that he will unite the country.
0: Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors?
1: Infrastructure has
3: always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio.
0: I am Jeannie Shanzano, and just minutes ago, the president gave an update on the pandemic. He answered questions about the pipeline shutdown. We're going to talk about that, plus the inflation numbers, the ouster of Liz Cheney, and the president's infrastructure meeting. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, along with Bloomberg politics contributor Rick Davis, and Doug Hay, former deputy chief of staff for the former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, and former communications director for the RNC. Very important to have both Rick and Doug here because as Republicans, they're going to, I hope, give us some insight into what's going on in the party. But before we get to that, we want to just address President Biden's statements about the pandemic response a few minutes ago. He said, amongst other things, that by next week, approximately 60% of Americans will have had at least one dose of the vaccine, which he described as safe, effective, easy, fast, and free. He also reiterated the big news of the day, the decision by the CDC to recommend the use of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for adolescents aged 12 to 15. This, of course, coming after the FDA announced on Monday that it was authorizing use of the vaccine for ages 12 and up During his remarks, the president also provided a little bit of an update, as Doug just mentioned, about the status of the Colonial Pipeline, saying we may have some good news on that within 24 hours. And this is, of course, welcome because we're on day six of the shutdown. And the impact has already been enormous on the ground as gas prices have continued to rise. There's been long lines, shortages. In Georgia, for instance, some reports said one in five gas stations are out of fuel And it's important because we saw earlier today Pete Buttigieg speaking at the White House during the press conference, where the issue came up about the Consumer Product Safety Commission warning people not to put gas or hoard gas and put it in plastic bags. And Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg spoke about this at the White House, and we have sound
2: on that. I will say that this is a time to be sensible and to be safe. Of course, we understand the concern. Uh, in the areas where people are encountering temporary supply disruptions, Um, but uh, hoarding does not make things better. And uh, under no circumstances should gasoline ever be put into anything but uh, a vehicle directly or an approved container. And that, of course, uh, remains true no matter what uh, else is going on.
0: So Doug, hi, and I'm sorry, I think I mispronounced it as, hey, that was my fault. But Doug, hi, it's so good to talk to you. I, I was a bit shocked that the consumer uh, product safety people had to issue this warning about plastic bags. But, um, you know, I think it speaks to the fact that we. it seems like people are really panicked here. So the president has noted that we may expect some good news within 24 hours Um hopefully it will be that they are back on track. But do you think, in your view, the Biden administration has handled this this crisis really well?
4: Well, I think thus far, they've they've clearly done the best job that they can. But we are at a very tender point. And if this doesn't improve in the next 24 to 48 hours, things are going to start getting exponentially worse. And I would tell you, I'm from North Carolina, and uh, it's one of the states that's been affected by this. And we've seen a lot of bad numbers coming from raleigh and charlotte specifically of gas stations that are closed with everything that's going on in washington dc in the in the past few days when i've been talking to folks back home in the chapel hill area winston salem and, and in charlotte all they're talking about are gas prices and the lack of accessibility when they go someplace and they're out of gas they've got to then use more gas to drive around um to find the place that's open and these aren't people who are necessarily hoarding uh but they're at a quarter of a tank they want to do their normal fill up and they're often not able to do so, that's only going to get worse and worse if we don't get a fix uh, pretty quickly. And that's first and foremost on voters' minds.
0: It's such a good point. And of course, you're in North Carolina. My understanding is North Carolina and Virginia both declared states of emergency. Georgia suspended its gasoline tax. So to your point, there is a lot of concern out there. And, And Rick, let me ask you, One of the things that has come up and I've heard some Republicans make this case today already, which is that perhaps this is an argument that we need to keep building pipelines and that Joe Biden was wrong in terms of the steps he took early in his administration on Keystone.
5: Yeah, I thought it was interesting that uh, Secretary Granholm and her press heard today. Uh, talked about how uh, uh, pipelines are the best and most efficient way to move gas around. And I think you know, most people who are involved in infrastructure uh, knew that. And uh, most people were left scratching their head going, okay, if that's the case, then why in the world would we have not kept uh, the Keystone Pipeline? So uh, one of the very first things that, uh, that uh, President Biden did in his administration was to shut that down, uh, closing off jobs in the, in the uh, Northwest and Northeast. And um, so, uh, look, I mean, these these things all have a life cycle. Uh, you would have thought Keystone Pipeline was dead and buried. Now it's it's back in the news. But really, I think it is a, a constituency issue, right? I think what Doug said is exactly right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm anecdotally, I couldn't get gas today. I went to three stations and nothing was open. Uh, so um, uh, you're left scratching your head on that, too, saying, well, how did we get here? Uh, uh, President Biden said we need to work closer with – Uh, corporate America, private companies, to ensure that they have the necessary cybersecurity that uh, keeps, keeps these kinds of businesses running. And I agree. I'm just wondering, why aren't we already doing that?
0: Yeah, and and I know you're you're in usually I know you're in several places, Rick, but you're usually in the D.C. Virginia area, and of course this entire East Coast, but particularly down where you and Doug are, seem to have been impacted even more than we are in the Northeast. Although we are still feeling the effects. So so Doug, on this point that that Rick raised, how did we get here? I think one of the things that has surprised me was that there had there is not more regulation or mandating in terms of companies like that, which runs the Colonial Pipeline, having really solid, uh, you know, cybersecurity practices in place, and being vulnerable to something like this that shuts down forty-five percent of the fuel on the East Coast.
4: Yeah, it, it, it's a very real vulnerability, and you know, as we've been talking about, you know, infrastructure over these um, past few years or past few weeks, and not in the past four years, Donald Trump Infrastructure Week, which was never about infrastructure, um, but what we're going to do about you know, building out infrastructure where we need to, this, this now rises to part of that conversation that might not have been there to ensure as best we can that that doesn't happen again because it's not just about, as you mentioned, what affects uh, directly those areas like a North Carolina, Virginia, Georgia um, that's dealing directly with this pipeline, but other consumers see that there's a problem with gas and they're going to stock up too. I, was, I saw this morning uh, that there's a problem with, with this in New Jersey where people are stocking up on gas They're not directly affected by it. They're obviously not pumping their own gas in New Jersey. They're not allowed to. But prices are rising there at a time when we're worried about inflation uh, because people see what's happening in the news.
0: That's so true. And and since I spent a lot of time on the New Jersey Turnpike, I can tell you firsthand you're not allowed to pump it there on your own. But, you know, to your point, Doug, um, we, we saw that President Biden talked about the gas and the pipeline just a few minutes ago. And I believe we have sound on that.
4: We have been in very, very close contact with Colonial Pipeline, which is the one area you're talking about where the one of the reasons the gasoline prices are going up. And I think you're going to hear some good news in the next 24 hours. And I think we'll be getting that under control. Secondly, um, uh, I have uh, in the meantime made it easier for us to have lifted some of the restrictions on the transportation of fuel as well as access to the United States military providing fuel and with vehicles to get it there were places where it's badly needed.
0: So, Rick, one of the things that that I've heard people a bit uh, baffled about is that there doesn't seem to be as much in this infrastructure bill proposed by the president, as massive as it is, that would protect our critical infrastructure from these kinds of attacks. And and I wonder if if you've had any had any thoughts on on the sort of absence of that in this bill. So mammoth.
5: Yeah, I think it's actually the reverse. Right. We're going to expand and extend uh, the broadband capability throughout the rest of the United States so that everybody can be attacked by cyber criminals not just those Don't of us say who have that broadband. Rick
0: please um,
3: <laughs> No I mean
5: like it, it, yeah. it, it, you got to laugh about it because that's it's actually the priority of this uh, infrastructure bill is to connect everybody that just gives more access to cyber criminals Look I mean uh, you know early in, in the term everyone kept talking about solar winds probably the most extensive cyber attack in US history a frontal attack to our infrastructure and corporations with very sensitive secrets and IP uh, that the Russians did that uh, ultimately uh, resulted in all kinds of security issues, but also failings of businesses. What has happened in, to, in regards to that? What was our response? What is our response to the group that's doing this? I, I understand there are technical things we should be doing to you know harden our, our private companies and our government systems. But in the meantime, what's our policy towards cyber criminals? I mean, like, you don't hear anything out of the administration about what has happened to those people who perpetrated the solar winds attack. And and, and what are we doing about this current group of criminals, you know, who have shut down our infrastructure in the Northeast?
0: And and to your point, Rick, I think one of the things that I've I've been a bit... um, Uh, sort of wondering about is the administration's view on these ransomware attacks. For a long time, it had been very clear that people were not to pay as a result of those. That seems to have been more muddled in their messaging over the last 48 hours or so. And of course, the cyber attack on the colonial pipeline that we've been talking about comes just as President Biden has been focusing on revitalizing the nation's infrastructure, as as Doug and Rick and I were just talking about. So we want to get into that uh when we are come up in the next segment we want to talk about the meeting he had today with four top congressional leaders to try to reach some kind of bipartisan compromise although early indications are they didn't make much progress we'll talk about that next
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio.
0: I am Jeannie Shanzano, along with Bloomberg politics contributor Rick Davis and Doug High, former deputy chief of staff for former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. And President Biden and the so-called big four of congressional leadership, the minority leaders of the House and Senate, along with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, met for two hours today to work on a bipartisan approach to the White House's infrastructure plan. Afterwards, Senator Mitch McConnell came out and told reporters that before the parties can agree on the details of any kind of package, there's an important point they have to hammer out first. We have sound on that.
4: The first step is obviously to define what infrastructure is, the the definition of it. And we all think all agreed to work on that uh, together.
0: So, so Rick, when I heard Mitch McConnell say that when he left the meeting. It didn't fill me with much confidence that we're gonna see a a deal by the deadline of, say, July that Nancy Pelosi had talked about, if they're still talking about what infrastructure is.
5: Well I I think that's actually the ground rule, right? If you're if you're talking past each other and one version of infrastructure includes Lots of social programs and 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 things that you know are community-based activities, uh, versus what Republicans tend to call hard infrastructure—roads, bridges, the, the broadband we've been talking about. Uh, those are it, unless you get to that point, you're never going to be able to figure out what the total cost is. What I thought uh, 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 Leader McConnell did do is uh, create a pathway to get there. If we can agree on that, then we can start talking about how to pay for it what what it's going to look like and what kind of legislation will be written around it and To me, I mean, you know, it's a better first meeting than I would have thought. I just remember the first meeting Donald Trump had with the Big Four, and it was a disaster. So um, this, at least, it's more civil.
0: It, It definitely was more civil. And, Rick, you mentioned that if once they get over this hurdle of defining infrastructure, they may be able to come to some agreement, hopefully, on how to pay for it. The president has said he will partially finance the $2 trillion plan by bumping up taxes for corporations, and Senator Mitch McConnell said Republicans will not sign off on that. We have sound on that.
4: We're not interested in reopening the 2017 tax bill. We both made that clear to the president. That's our red line.
0: So, Doug, if that is their red line, where can they find compromise and bipartisanship on this if they are willing to revisit the 2017 tax bill?
4: Yeah, look, you know, obviously Republicans for a while have been past four years have been okay with deficit spending um, in a way that they hadn't been under uh, uh, under the Obama administration. But clearly taxes are, are something that Republicans will not support raising. So then you've you've got to look at, back to, and this is what McConnell basically was saying about the uh, meeting is, okay, what is the traditional infrastructure definition and what can we do there? And clearly, you know, over generations, the term of infrastructure grows a little bit. You know, we didn't talk about cyber attacks 20 years ago. We didn't use broadband uh, 20 years ago, at least the way that we do now. So some of that's expanded, but if we can get, to places on roads and bridges and tunnels and trains, things like that, uh, airports, uh, that'll be a good place for the administration to start with Republicans, if they can get there.
0: And and Rick, do you think, do you see, to Doug's point, that there is room for a sort of agreement here? You know, for me particularly, If President Biden and the Republicans are able to agree on these really complicated issues, how does he then hold the Democrats, particularly people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez?
5: Well, I think that anything below a billion dollars is something a Republican could, you know, with a straight face say, hey, we did infrastructure. And, And there'll be things in there that benefit their districts or their constituencies uh, or their ideology in some shape or form. And so right now he's had his way with the progressive left, um, partly because he's given them a lot to do. <laughs> I mean, it, this isn't the only piece of legislation that he's passed recently uh, or is trying to pass that have a bundle of good things for the progressive left. So they're just going to have to swallow this pill if they if they want a bipartisan bill. The question they're going to ha- have to ask each other uh, in the caucus meetings with the Democrats is – Hey, do we really have the votes to pass something on our own? They did that with the rescue package and 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 they got a lot of benefits uh, for the progressive left there. But can they do that this time around? No indication at this point that they've got the votes to do it. So if you cut off that retreat, then they had to come uh, to the table in a legitimate bargaining position.
0: Well, we're going to see if they are able to, to move forward on that. Uh, you know, another big piece of news out of Washington, D.C. today had to do with the fate of Liz Cheney, who was ousted from her leadership position. And following the meeting at the White House, a reporter asked uh, McCarthy if he agrees with the former president and many of those who ousted Cheney that the election was stolen. Here's the leader's response.
5: I don't think anybody is questioning the legitimacy of the presidential election i think that is all over with we're sitting here with the president today um so from that point of view i don't think that's a problem
0: so coming up we want to talk to both rick and doug two republicans who have been in their room about what happened in the ouster of liz cheney today and whether mccarthy actually can make this case he tried to made outside the meeting I'm Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. I am here along with politics Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Doug High, former Deputy Chief of Staff for the former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. And Liz Cheney this morning was voted out of her leadership duties for the Republican Party. The Wyoming Congresswoman ousted by House Republicans for continuing to speak out against what she has called the big lie former President Trump's false insistence that the 2020 election was stolen from him. Following the vote, which happened very quickly this morning, Cheney told reporters she knows that speaking out against Trump and his lies is the right thing to do for the Republican party. We have sound on that.
1: I uh, am absolutely committed, as I said last night, uh, and as I said just now to my colleagues, uh, that we must go forward uh, based on truth We cannot both uh, embrace the big lie and embrace the Constitution. And going forward, uh, the nation needs it. The nation needs a strong Republican Party. Uh, The nation needs a party that that is based upon fundamental principles of conservatism. And I am committed and dedicated to ensuring uh, that that's how this party goes forward, and I plan to lead the fight to do that.
0: Cheney also told reporters that she will not be silenced about the dangers posed by allowing former President Trump to continue lying. We have sound on that.
1: I uh, will do uh, everything I can to ensure uh, that uh, the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. We have seen the danger uh, that he continues to provoke with his language. Uh, we have seen his lack of commitment and dedication to the Constitution. Uh, and I think it's very important that we make sure whomever we elect is somebody who will be faithful to the Constitution. Wow. So, Doug,
0: was this a big victory for President, former President Trump? Uh, he did put out a statement afterwards.
4: You no, know, he, he's certainly going to take credit for it. I don't know that it's a victory for Trump per se, because we don't want, we don't know what Trump's ultimate objectives are here. Um but certainly, you know, for me, it's it's a loss for the Republican Party that it is still warring amongst itself um, and unable, not only to, to move forward, but not able to move forward because it's always Donald Trump who brings this back up into he's not tweeting now, but in statements that he was cheated, that this was um, stolen from him and that Republican uh, members of Congress are continuing to push things like in Arizona or Pennsylvania. That things have been stolen from them. So Cheney is essentially saying, until we confront our past, we can't move past that. And given the number of registered Republicans who've left the party since Election Day and since January 6th, Republicans need to take a hard look at how can they win in the future um, if, if their voters are, are abandoning them.
5: Doug, I think you make a really good point about uh, the fact that this isn't just the past, right? You got to uh, pass it's prologue. Uh, we see this happening today. Uh, the president continues to challenge the efficacy of the election. Uh, we continue to see efforts by Republican legislatures all around the country uh, to change ballot laws, uh, to quote, uh, ensure that the elections are uh, more fair. So they, are, they play into that narrative. And, and so uh, I, I think that it shouldn't surprise anybody that there are people in Congress. Uh, Liz Cheney is a good example of one who don't think that this is a good idea for the party to be continually prosecuting an election uh, six months after uh, a president has taken office. And so you you, you kind of it, it, it's right. I mean, you, maybe he's going to declare victory at Mar-a-Lago. But the, the real battle, the real war is going to be whether or not you are better equipped because of this to win elections in 2022. And I would say we took a big step backwards today.
0: And on your point, Rick, um, one of the things Cheney said to reporters, um, echoing much of what she said last night on the floor, which I thought was, was very moving, but she said today after the vote that despite the fact that she was ousted by her colleagues, she said she doesn't feel betrayed by that vote. And she said, in fact, she feels even more affirmed that she's doing the right thing. We have sound on that.
1: I do not. I think that uh, it is uh, an indication of where the Republican Party is, and I think that the party uh, is in a place that we've got to bring it back from, and we've got to get back to a position where uh, we are a party that can fight for conservative principles, that can fight for substance. We cannot be dragged backward uh, by uh, the very dangerous lies of a former president.
0: So, Doug, to to Liz Cheney's point, where is the Republican Party right now? I noted that we've got about 100 former Republican governors, congresspeople and others who tomorrow are going to release this call for American renewal statement of principles. And they're really sort of laying down the gauntlet that the party has got to move away from the former president or they are going to think about a third party.
4: Yeah, well, I I might agree with a lot of what their analysis is, but the reality is uh, where the majority of, of the House representatives' uh, Republican conferences today in ousting Cheney is where a majority of the Republican primary voters are. And that's what they're responding to. That's who they hear from every day. And so that's why this, this uh, move now um, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. And you know, Cheney said that she would deal with the short-term political consequences. Okay, today was the short-term political consequences for Lynn Cheney. She's talking very long-term. It's It's obviously very difficult to build a third party. And for those parties that are out there, the Libertarian Party, the Greens and so forth, they don't have much success. Uh, But but clearly Cheney realizes that there is a very real problem here. And this is exactly what so many people predicted back in 2015 and 16. And ultimately, what we see in every movie and every book that deals with the subject is if you make a deal with the devil, there is a price that you're going to have to pay. And Republicans are paying that price now. They lost the White House. They lost the House and they lost the Senate. Uh, We'll see what happens in 2022. But 2024 is harder for Republicans moving forward as well.
0: And, Rick, given what Doug just laid out, um, why did McCarthy, why did we see Scalise, why did we see, quite frankly, most of the conference make this vote today? Why are they going all in with Donald Trump, if you will?
5: Well, I think partly because of what Doug said, which is this is where the Republican Party rank and file are, right? It's become as much a cult of personality as it is the old GOP. And and so when when Kevin McCarthy goes down to Mar-a-Lago and pleads with the president to be part of their campaign to retake the House of Representatives, he knows that uh, uh, Donald Trump, you know, if he signs off on the candidates he wants to run, uh, will, will will be an attractive force for the base Republican vote whether you can win in some of these districts with just that vote who knows that's the gamble he's taking but he's clearly made a choice i mean a very affirmative choice that he is not going to pursue republican ideological uh arguments in the election uh which would be representative of liz cheney's career uh and instead he's going to hitch his wagon to donald trump and and frankly um you know with the with the historical cycles of turnover in a first term of a, uh, a party in power, he's got a chance at making that work. If he doesn't, I think it's it's a disaster for the Republican Party. I mean, we've already lost a presidential election, the United States Senate, and the House of Representatives under Donald Trump's leadership, and to to, to miss an opportunity in 2022 uh, should cause the party to really uh, rethink where it is.
4: And if— yeah, go ahead, Doug. If I can, it's not just Liz Cheney. What we also saw today um, in the hearing in the House of Representatives were congressional Republicans basically comparing January 6th to a normal day of tourists visiting their capital and, and so forth. Those kinds of messages, um, aside from being obviously just completely unfounded and ridiculous, are messages that scare a lot of those Repu- a lot of those voters that Republicans have struggled with over the past few years. Suburban women, by the way. You know, who in Wake County, North Carolina, outside Charlotte, North Carolina, outside Atlanta, are, are going to see Republicans say this and say, these guys are out to lunch.
0: And, and Doug, um, how do you assess Elise Stefanik, given all that you and Rick have said about, um, you know, sort of this, uh, you know, all in on Donald Trump How do you you know, number one, uh, you know, how do you rate in terms of her chances of being elected on Friday? But more than that, how do you square, you know, her previous statements about the president and her voting record? I live very close to her district, and she was a moderate pretty much prior to 2016, 2017, and that first impeachment.
4: Well, her ideological ideological positions haven't really changed. Uh, And and this to me highlights, you know, she did make a change, and that was when her district changed, and she went all in for Trump. But so often, you know, we've heard this conversation of you're a moderate or you're a Trump conservative. And I would argue that those were distinctions that never really existed. Uh, Donald Trump was never a conservative. What we've seen with Republican behavior in the past few years, again, look at the spending in the four years of the Trump administration, wasn't conservative. Um, And so Stefanik is decidedly more moderate than Cheney was. Uh, But ultimately, the litmus test in the Republican Party right now is, by and large, where do you stand on Donald Trump? Positions come second. Conservatives will certainly make some grumbling and are um, questioning her conservative credentials. She'll probably have somebody run against her. Uh, But right now, leadership is really putting a heavy thumb or two uh, on the scales for her, and they want to lock this up, in part because uh, they need a woman uh, to be in leadership because they're ousting one. And, you know, Republicans have struggled with Uh, female representation uh, for a long time now at the committee chair level and in leadership.
0: That is, it's just so fascinating. And, um, you know, I know there is more to come on this story. Uh, Doug, you mentioned the January 6th issue. That was one of the issues that that, uh, Liz Cheney had been critical of of the president about his role in the insurrection. And there was a hearing today on that on Capitol Hill as well. So I want to thank so much Doug High, former deputy chief of staff for the former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. Thank you, Doug. It was very good to get your in sites on this busy day. And now I'm really pleased to welcome back to Sound On Andy Levin, re- representative from Michigan's 9th Congressional District. Um, Congressman, so good to talk to you. And we were just talking about the ouster of Liz Cheney. So I wanted to see if you, you know, would weigh in here a little bit on what you're seeing from your vantage point.
3: Sure thing, Jeannie. Well, it's really remarkable. I mean, I think Liz Cheney and I don't agree agree on hardly anything policy-wise, but she and I, I think, share a patriotism that we have to stand up for our country above our parties. And she is uh, standing up for a Republican party that's devoted to the truth, not to loyalty to a you know, emperor with no clothes, and it's a sad day for the Republican Party, but it's, a, it's an honorable day for Liz Cheney.
5: Congressman, uh, you, you sound just like my old boss, John McCain, talking about uh, the profiles and courage of being a congressman. It's a tough spot you all have in the, uh, in the House of Representatives. It's a, it's a combative place, and, uh, and I think that the kinds of things that have happened this week Uh, are teaching us a lot of lessons, and and I actually uh, was channeling a little bit of John McCain on Tuesday night when I watched uh, Congresswoman Cheney's speech on the floor, uh, talking about really serving causes greater than her own self-interest, and I'm curious, um, you know, the chatter on the floor today, I mean, obviously, this has been mostly a Republican on Republican Crime Day. But um, does does it change the way Republicans and Democrats can work together? Does it make it harder uh, with the leadership to uh, to find common ground? Or does uh, Congresswoman Cheney offer a opportunity to try and work with other Republicans within the caucus, not necessarily leadership?
3: You know, for me, I'll just speak personally, Rick. For me, it doesn't change anything. I I approach. Uh, Mike McCall, the ranking member of the Foreign Affairs Committee on which I serve, about a bill idea I have, you know, and all eager to see if he wants to get on board. It'd be amazing to have the top Republican on the committee or if he has other ideas about a lead co-sponsor among Republicans. I didn't even think to bring this up. I mean, how much worse can it get than a majority of the of you know the party of Republicans voting to nullify the votes of millions of their fellow Americans in Arizona and Pennsylvania, and they would have done it in Michigan and what Georgia and Nevada if they could get a senator to agree. I mean, they they have left the reservation of democracy off into some other kind of place. And, you know, Liz Cheney, I mean, she just has the honor of like, you know what, I'll fight for my beliefs. And I mean, she's way more conservative than... Elise Stefanik. I know them both. There's just a tremendous irony in this. America needs a Republican Party. We need a Republican Party that stands up for real values that they, you know, used to be all for, which is, you know, low taxes or small government or free trade or saber rattling on Russia or China, whatever you however you want to characterize it you know uh i mean i love debating policy with republicans but when republicans as she says as liz cheney points out continue to propagate an outright lie about there being something wrong with the election she just isn't going to stand for it and i salute her for that but i'm I'm just going to keep working with republicans as best i can on actual policy (laughs) that's what that's going to be my approach
0: So, so Congressman, um, you know, one of the things that Liz Cheney had made a case of was the former president's role in the insurrection on January 6th. Um, And I know this is something you care an awful lot about. Um, We had two senior Trump administration officials before the House Oversight Committee today defending their actions during the riots. Are we any closer to seeing a real investigation into what happened on January 6th that is going to be bipartisan to your previous point, and that will be able to get to the bottom of of that, you know, really stunning event just a few months ago?
3: I certainly hope so, Jeannie. I I think negotiations continue, you know, so there's hope there. Also, um, we're going to get to the bottom of it one way or another, um, given the amount of law enforcement uh, focus on it, um, you know, focus on it in the Senate as well as the House. But it would be great to have a 9-11-style commission that really could get to the bottom of it. But it is just difficult when, say, the minority leader of the House uh, continues to propagate the lies of the former president. I mean, it's kind of hard to... Um, you know get to an agreement on investigating an insurrection when people don't want to call it an insurrection i mean I, I don't know if you remember this but right after we walked back into that chamber amidst broken glass and freshly swabbed up blood the evidence of violent attack on the capitol was could not be denied we had Republican members get up like Mr. Gates and give a speech saying, well, those weren't real supporters of Mr. Trump. Those were Antifa, (laughs) just making things up that were complete falsehoods. So it's difficult to to see how we'll get there. But I know the speaker is honestly committed to trying to have uh, a commission. So I hope we will.
5: Congressman, it uh, reminds me of the old line, don't believe your lying eyes. Um, uh, let's, let's switch over to a, a, a topic that we have been discussing earlier in the program on the colonial pipeline. We've just gotten word uh, that uh, it looks like they're going to start pumping oil again, pumping gas uh, in, uh, in the next few hours. And, and that is good to relieve the pain. But look, you're, you're a Motor City guy, right? Uh, we see Absolutely. all these changes happening in, um, in Detroit, in Michigan, around uh, EVs, electric vehicles, uh, a trend that doesn't seem to be uh, 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 you know uh, abating at all. Uh, in five years from now, uh, something like this happens in uh, Colonial Pipeline, and they shut down that, that gas pipe again in the Northeast. Are we going to care as much? Are there going to so many electric vehicles that uh, people are going to say, oh, I, I don't even remember the last time I got gas?
3: Well, I can say that right now, because I drive, you know, we've got a Chevy Volt with a V and a Chevy Bolt with a B, which is a hybrid and a full electric car. And I honestly sometimes go by Costco and think, oh, I better get gas. I'm like, oh, you don't do that anymore. That's great. (laughs) So, you know, so I've had the experience, but, you know, I just... I uh, relaunched my EV Freedom Act to to work with the president to put up charging infrastructure. And my, my idea is high-speed charging infrastructure on our national highway system. So we can – I am a Detroit guy. I want to be able to road trip. I want all Americans to be able to road trip in their EVs, take their kid to college, or go visit grandma in Omaha, Nebraska without worrying about running out of juice. But we, you know, we will, here's the bottom line, we need pipelines right now. We have, that's the most efficient way and the most environmentally friendly way to move oil and gas around. But we will transition very quickly towards electric vehicles and the need for, you know, pipelines will decrease. But for some time, we need to take care of this vital infrastructure. And so somebody like me, as big a champion as I am, of tackling climate change head on is still very concerned about, uh, about what happened with the pipeline. And in fact, I've got a briefing from the White House in um, about 10 minutes on this very subject. So we're, we're taking it super seriously. We cannot have people, uh, you know, holding our, our infrastructure uh, up for ransom. It's unacceptable.
0: So, so, Congressman, what would you like to see in terms of moving forward to address these attacks on our critical infrastructure? I think one of the many things that I've learned in the last few days has been the pipeline sector is not required to report every attack or every incident. So even in terms of these sort of various reporting requirements, it's difficult to know, estimate, or understand the number of attacks, let alone address them. So what do you think of Uh, you know, Congress, the administration to do going forward to protect this critical infrastructure?
3: Well, Jeannie, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, what the reports I see and the intelligence I see is that um, private sector actors sometimes pay ransoms in these cyber attacks without any, any, the, the idea that an attack even happened coming to light. So I think as Congress we have to take a very serious look at that. We need a we need a lot of sunshine pouring in on this problem. Um and if you are in the private sector that's great if you run a profitable pipeline or some other piece of infrastructure that's great but you're going to have to share information because we cannot allow uh, foreign actors uh, private or you know from foreign spy agencies themselves to be um, attacking our infrastructure like that. It's just a matter of national security. So we're going to have to deal with it.
0: And, and do you think there's any sort of, uh, tr- I don't know, truth is probably not the right word, but, but there's anything to the argument that we've been hearing in the last uh, couple days, some mainly from Republicans, that perhaps we need more pipeline in the country, that the president's move on Keystone early in his administration was problematic.
3: No. And, you know, there's been a lot of confusion on this. We actually had a hearing today in the Foreign Affairs Committee with uh, Secretary Kerry, our our new you know global climate change envoy, and Republicans were making this argument. So here (laughs) – let let me see if I can put it this way. If we have, you know, 100 pipelines in the country and the president says we don't need 101, the president's not saying we don't need pipelines. (laughs) Pipelines aren't important. He's just saying, as as you know, um, as Rick was pointing out earlier, it's time to not build more because we're going to need less in the future. I mean, that's that's what the president's saying, and I think he's, you know, he, he's got a good argument there. So I don't. Nobody's saying that pipelines aren't important or that we don't need to protect them. You just have to look with a, a steely eye to the market and where it's going, and about you know maintaining as much infrastructure as you need.
5: Congressman, uh, we've, we've heard a lot about sort of what we need to be doing to protect ourselves. But um, uh, I was talking to Jeannie earlier in the program about what are we doing to go after these bad actors? I mean, solar winds, dark side. I mean, these are bad people. They're affecting our employment. They're affecting our economy. They're affecting our infrastructure uh, in, in, a, in a more and more dramatic way. Uh, uh, when you go over to the White House, are you going to ask them, what are we doing to the bad guys? How do we wrap these guys up so they can't keep doing it to us?
3: You know, Rick, the, the president has been kind of—I don't know if teasing is the right word—but he's been sort of sending out indication, the indications that he's going to be coming out with a plan. But I, I absolutely think you're right, and especially as we continue to change and innovate in our energy, we have to, uh, you know, we—for example—we got example, we to move to much smarter electrical grids. Well, the smarter they are the more they could be monkeyed with uh, through computers. So this is going to be a problem that we don't only have to take seriously right now, but it's going to be a growing issue. And so we might as well step up to the plate and start tackling it. I mean, have you heard this talk about how this dark, Thing, they're like, do charitable giving and all this? I mean, this is nonsense. Yeah, they actually People have a percentage
5: are, of their extortion that goes to charity. I mean, it's incredible. And, and mean, their line to the public was, hey, we were just trying to make a living here. We weren't really trying to, you know, up, interrupt your gas supply. It's not. It's
3: really like a mafia boss, you know, like uh, sponsoring a hospital. I'm sorry. You know, it's you are a cyber terrorist and you need to be held accountable. And I think that's a bipartisan... Approach right
0: there. Yeah, I, I was stunned to hear that, this whole Robin Hood description of this dark side group. And I think to your and Rick's point, uh, you know, hopefully in the days that are to coming, we get more information from the White House about this. I want to thank so much Representative Andy Levin for the Ninth Congressional District in Michigan for taking the time to talk to us before he goes to the White House to get his briefing. Thank you, Representative Levin, and also, of course, Rick Davis and Hi, I'm Jeannie Shanzano and this is Bloomberg.